tanks, armored vehicles, trucks. The Army buys them all from contractors. But over their sometimes long life cycles, the Army relies on its own production and maintenance facilities. Those make up what the military calls the organic industrial base. At this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference, I got an update on modernizing the industrial base from the commander of the Army's Tank Automotive and Armaments Command, Brigadier General Michael Laylor. The great take home in the great city of Detroit. How are things out in Detroit? Sir, exciting time to be in Detroit. Really a hub of innovation out there, quartered at Detroit Arsenal. We have us, obviously, working the sustainment, but you also have the great program executive officers for ground combat systems and then combat service support up there working and acquiring you know new hardware for the Army. But then you also got the cross-functional team up there from the ground combat system. So it really is a great place to serve. I've been up there two months, and... Uh, we really have the team of teams up there, almost a, a model for the Army in terms of how we uh, integrate all our functions and modernize. And just give us the outlines of TACOM's purview, where it begins, where it ends, with respect to fielding a ground system. Absolutely, sir. I mean, TACOM, we affect you know ground combat systems from the uh, strategic support area for the strategic base all the way to the tactical edge to the unit employment. Detroit, Michigan is where the headquarters is. We have six depots and arsenals around the country uh, in the continental United States. So Sierra Army Depot, California, Red River Army Depot, Texarkana, Texas, Aniston Army Depot in Alabama, uh, Rock Island Arsenal, the Joint Manufacturing and Technology Center there. In Lima, Ohio, we have the uh, Joint Systems Manufacturing Center, which is the tank production uh, right there. And then also uh, Waterville Lead Arsenal in Albany doing a cannon tube production. Really a unique capability there. And then, of course, you know, we can maintain, reset, manufacture equipment in those arsenals and depots around the world and then move it to the point of employment by the tactical units. And then at each of our locations where units are in the field, you have a TACOM logistics assistance representative right there, primarily focused on maintenance, but he or she can also work some supply integration. And, of course, we're partnered with our partners working for our military sales. And, of course, a lot of our work right now is sure. production of uh, equipment going into the Eastern European fight or maintaining our own army's readiness. Absolutely. Well, for two months on the job, you have good command of all the parts and pieces, including Thanks, all the it, initial names. Thanks, sir. Yeah, it, is, it, is, it is big, but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I really enjoy it. Now, last year when we were at this booth, there was a tank right across from us, a striker tank. And that was not built originally by the Army. That was made by a contractor factory. That's right. And so in the life cycle of that piece of equipment, when does it become the TACOM's purview to, say, make spare parts for or to repair or otherwise refurbish? Yeah, I mean, we go through an extensive process when we get a piece of equipment, ground combat systems or otherwise, that is uh, made by an original equipment manufacturer. We go through the entire process and look at it from a sustainment perspective, go through a series of everything from the supply chain on it to how it's maintained, where it will be maintained, either at the tactical level or even us at the sustainment level. And then eventually we decide to fully, uh, if that's a program of record that we're going to fully material release and then and manage from the Army's perspective, eventually it, over time it'll transition from the contractor through the life cycle management command model and then we'll take it on and then and then from there, you know, all the things that happen in that supply chain. Hey, you have a part, it's provisioned by this vendor, it's managed, we give it a stock number, units can then order it, or, you know, in terms of all the technical manuals and the data that comes with it, you know, we have that published and are now training in that into force. Truly, that's really what we're all about at the end of the day, is integrating all those supply and maintenance functions of a system 
and then enabling a unit to function with it and fight and win with it on the battlefield. And at some point, you have that in organic industrial capability within TACOM. If you have to fabricate something, you can do that. 100%, sir. I mean, inside our organic industrial base, uh, specific to those sites I talk with TACOM, you know, if we need something manufactured, we do have capabilities to manufacture. If we need to uh, contract, we have the partners in Army Contracted Command with an AMC. We can bring in what we need from a supply chain or specific vendor and then integrate that to help the unit and get it to the part they need. But that is really a unique part of what we do. We can uh, manufacture. We can additive manufacture these days. We have a really array of capabilities within that industrial base to allow the Army to maintain itself, to surge sometimes, and also... Uh, I look at it as like our insurance policy, if, you know, when we need to uh, sure. you know, surge into a wartime situation, that'll buy time and space for our industrial base to uh, I guess help. some of these things are like Model Ts. You could actually make one from scratch if you had to. Yeah, we could. If we had the technical specifications and that data, you know, we have the talented people inside that base who could take those materials, then turn those materials into the system. And then integrate all that, you know, whatever the specific uh, supporting elements of it and put it in play. Now, the organic industrial base has come under scrutiny lately because it seems to be strained, as is the commercial industrial base for a lot of things that the Army needs, consumes, that has to have on hand in large volume. You know, in the case of conflict, should that happen? So what is going on from your standpoint at TACOM to reinvigorate the organic industrial base of DOD? We've been doing that for several years now, and then what we've seen here with Eastern Europe has really allowed us to put a lot of that in operation and also to see where we need to go in the future. So uh, I would start going back to some good analysis that was done by the Army in 2019 and looking at the organic industrial base, eventually uh, an approved organic industrial base modernization plan funded through our partners in Congress, $18 billion across 15-year plan here in uh, AMC, TACOM we have six of those 23 depots and arsenals. We probably have about 30%, almost $5.5 billion of the $18 billion that is surging into our facilities, our capital investment, really into the talent, you know, and upskilling our people. And uh, really the, the work that we've had come under in terms of the demands from uh, either supporting the war in Ukraine or supporting the Army really has allowed us to exercise some good systems and put it in play. And we've seen some dramatic uptick in terms of work, which helps our skills and ability, you know, uh, would say it's like repetitions, able to uh, exercise our systems at Waterville, at Red River, Anniston, really across the whole team. So, and it also shows too where we got to go in the future for making sure we got some either public-private partnerships established or some good industry connections so that we can surge in the future. I've embraced it. I think TACOM's embraced it. We really have uh, risen to the challenge. Amazing what we've been able to do terms of supporting all our allies simultaneously sure. and, then, and, then, and then also executing what we need for our Army. Now, a lot of this work requires specific skills, welding, the ability to program and operate numerically controlled machines or computer-controlled machines, metallurgy, really, and so on. Do you find a challenge in getting the personnel you need? In the Army and then also commercial sector, there is the you know, drive for talent right now. I, I feel like we're in a good place. But uh, we're, we're open for business. We're looking for new upskilled talent to bring in and develop some new uh, skilled workers, like you said, and, you know, new and emerging skill sets, whether in, you know, metalworks or we're talking uh, manufacturing or we're talking added manufacturing. So, but I think what's great in TACOM is we have a uh, talent development program, which is really the model for uh, AMC and the Army in terms of upskilling and, and modernizing our workforce, but also it extends to how we educate our workforce and 
That even includes apprenticeship programs at local technical schools, universities in and around our depots and arsenals. And it's really having some good effects in terms of bringing some uh, renewed energy, some new talent, and also merging that with upskilling our existing Mm -hmm. workforce. Kind of getting this uh, convergence of the uh, older and the newer going on. It's actually driven our uh, workforce average age down in a few places, uh, like uh, Waterville Arsenal, good example, probably has driven their average work age down nine years in just about four years, and that's pretty important. Yeah, because I've been to Waterville many years ago, and it was not exactly youngsters operating some yeah. of the machines up there. Now you walk around there, you know, I'd like to think of myself as still young, but our average age workforce up there is about 38, so it has come down a lot, and uh, you get a lot of young uh, professionals in there working on the lines, especially they're attracted to by some of the technology we got and so when you're thinking about something like water uh when we make a breech block for a cannon we used to do it, it used to take us like 30 different processes and steps now we got this upskilled machinery as modern as anything anybody else has in the world ministry wise and now they're working two steps and they're doing it at a much higher capacity and rate and the job satisfaction attracts it. it's a good time it's a good All time right. to be serving and fair to say you probably are not recruiting on the picket lines of, of the UAW at this point in Detroit. No, no. And the, uh, you know, we, we wish all that well, but we, we have no problems in uh, bringing in talent. And uh, we support all our partners in the area. But uh, the Arsenal, we got, our, we got our own workflow going, our own talent. And, uh, and the Arsenal is uh, open for business around the country. So. All right. Final question on the raw materials. What does that look like in terms of availability? Because some of these metals are highly specialized. They're not just sheet steel you can buy anywhere yeah. and so on. And uh, there's also the inflationary effect yeah. because of the energy that goes into manufacturing the raw materials. Yeah, I think we had in the last several years, we've had some supply chain challenges with some of those materials that were in high demand. I think we've come through a lot of that challenge right now. We've got really good partnerships with uh, getting the raw materials we need. Uh, when I think about places like Red River and Anniston and, again, back to Watervliet and even Rock Island, they're able to get their materials. And in some of those locations, we're able to, I would say, almost execute process and manufacture ahead now where we're starting to get a little depth and some surge capacity in on the materials. So we're doing pretty good from a materials perspective. I think one of our challenges, take on wide, is still some of the demands on vendors for supply chain and specific parts for systems that might be aging or obsolete. We've had to be creative in different ways in terms of getting and working through getting obsolete parts, whether through sure. making them ourselves or working through second, third-party suppliers. But we're in a good position from a raw materials perspective right now. And you must get a lot of feedback from these platforms in the field so that you know, well, golly, when it gets to be 19 years old, that's the U-joint that's going to go. And yeah. you can build those in anticipation of the fleet of whatever the platform is of needing that U-joint. And you won't wait till the failure yeah, absolutely. I think we have good data on a lot of those systems, especially those that have been in use for a while. And we can take that data and then our skilled supply chain managers, you know, item managers can look ahead and get deeper and try and get us some depth uh, in some of those areas. Not saying that's always an easy task, but they do have the data to literally inform their actions then from what we're buying and, and buy with some precision. And again, that's another good example of uh, improved precision sustainment from the perspective of Tinkom. All right. You drive an automatic or a stick shift? I have driven a stick shift, so I don't know how many Americans still can, but uh, these days in automatics. This American still can and does. <laughs> there so. you go. I'm, I'm, I'm still as versatile as well. All right. Excellent. Thanks. Brigadier General Michael Laylor commands the Army's Tank Automotive and Armaments Command. I spoke with him at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference earlier this week. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. 
Arm yourself with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.